This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Hard to believe it was a year ago this week that uh, uh, Fort McMurray was uh, sent running when uh, wildfires uh, invaded their town, forcing an evacuation of residents. Uh, let's, uh, we're going to talk to a, a various different people here. Let's hear a couple of clips first. These are from residents uh, talking about uh, what life is like uh, the day after, or the year after, rather. Here's a clip from Shane. It wasn't much, just a little 932-square-foot home. I had my garage, but it was a little place, our first home, and it was where we started our family. And uh, another resident talking about uh, the year after. Every time I go there, it does trigger something that it's like it tells me, you know, part of you is still here. Uh, this is Ibisam also commenting on the year after. It's like something, it's like grave for me now. I can't go back there. I, it's very hard for me and for the kids as well. You know, and you can totally understand that. I mean, we remember what the footage was like of... Uh, people fleeing this area and you know fire on both sides of the road and and embers coming down on on the road and such uh you can understand how some people just maybe didn't want to go back uh let's brad uh, bring in brad whisker he's a reporter on the ground for 6:30 chad in edmonton alberta and uh was up there this weekend is is on the line with us now hello brad how are you today not too bad, Scott. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. So you were up this weekend, I understand. What's it like now? What's life like there now? Well, you can uh, notice a big difference, actually, as soon as you drive in, because we all remember that image of the Super 8 motel burning down, and that was kind of synonymous with the fire. And as soon as I drove into um, Fort McMurray, you could see the reconstruction of that building. So I'm sure that is a positive reminder for people as they drive in, but you when you drive through the city you also see a lot of those burn marks left on the trees and now you're starting to see the rebuilding of homes so there's reminders wherever you go around that city the rebuild seems to be going well a lot of people are frustrated though because insurance companies are giving them a hard time and it it is still a tough time up there and uh, it's going to take a while before it's uh, back to normal or at least gaining some sense of normalcy uh, what about population size, this sort of thing? We've heard some uh, anecdotal evidence that some just never came back. Many of those stories up there? Yeah, some people haven't come back, and I think, you know, a lot of people won't go back. Their home was lost, their jobs had to be moved to another city, or they just quit and look for, for work elsewhere. Um, as far as a, a standing number, I, I can't really speak to that, but this was a city that had 80,000 people in it. So we'll see probably in a couple of years just how much this affected the people that lived in Fort Mac. Uh, Talk about the people themselves. Uh, Has it scarred them? Are you seeing more signs of resilience and they're, you know, they're just going to rebuild and you move on sort of thing? Uh, You know, or or, are those images, you can imagine what it must have been like to evacuate and go through all of that. Uh, Has it left some images with people that, that, you know, they're, they're traumatized by this? Absolutely. While I was up there on the weekend, I spoke with a a doctor and he told me that the clinic he works for has seen a 25% increase in patient intake since the fire, since coming back from the fire, I should say. He said a lot of people are coming in, understandably so, with issues like anxiety, depression, sleep deprivation. And then there's those other people who kind of went through that honeymoon period, the first six months after going back home. And, you know, the community was rallying and it was very strong and we will get through this, we will rebuild. But now that the process is still ongoing, some people, the doctor told me, 
are starting to suffer from that because they were hoping this to be a lot quicker than it's going. So they now are coming in to see him and, and asking for help. And that's the case at many clinics throughout the city, he told me. And there are support groups set up. There's seven across the city, and he says they're full all the time. Uh, talk a little bit about the health about the health of the city. Are there people suffering any sort of illnesses other than uh, mental health issues, which you know are obvious, I guess, uh, with some sort of with a traumatic experience like they've experienced up there? But what about other health issues? We heard lots about contamination, this sort of thing, uh, when the fire was being put out. Yeah, the contamination side of things hasn't really been brought up since the fire. I was talking to the doctor about that, and he didn't really have much to to say uh, on that topic. Um, people obviously are still struggling um, with um, with their breathing. Some of them, you know, their lungs were impacted by driving through and being stuck in the city during that lengthy evacuation process. But it, it seems to be the mental health component that is really affecting the city. Uh, what about the city itself and, and the parts that had to be rebuilt? Uh, you know, how far have they come along? You were talking about the motel outside of, uh, of town. Um, have things been complete? Are they just getting started? Where are we at with that? I think it really depends on how quickly the insurance companies that have processed these requests to rebuild. Um, definitely in Beacon Hill, which was one of the three really hard-hit areas. Beacon Hills just as soon as you get into Fort McMurray on the west side of town. And you can see houses being rebuilt, and we're not just talking about, you know, the plots being dug up. We're talking about windows being installed. We're talking about siding being installed. So in that area, it's going very well, same as in Abbasan. But then there's another community called Waterways, and it comes, it's right in the downtown, just east of the city as well. And down there, there's now erosion concerns and flooding concerns. So some temporary houses are going up, but a lot of other people are still waiting for those permits to approve. So so people in waterways are definitely suffering and still waiting for this process to, to get moving. Uh, talk a little bit more about that in insurance and this sort of thing. I mean, it's pretty obvious. We all know what happened. Um, that being said, why is it becoming difficult or why has it been difficult for people to get their claims sorted out? Well, I think some people didn't have insurance to begin with, so that's yeah. obviously an issue. Other people that do have it, there's just so many um, so many claims to be processed. And I was reading something today from the U of A saying that these fires are not once in a generation. These are going to happen more frequently, and they want the government to be proactive and not reactive after the fact. So they're now asking a lot of people here in Alberta to, to make sure they have that insurance and be ready for a situation like this so there's not such a backlog the next time. And I'm not trying to cast fear in anybody's mind, but this will happen again, they're saying, so be prepared for it. Uh, we remember during this crisis there was lots of donations from right, right the way across the country. Um, obviously those, I'm sure, are more dedicated towards those in, in Red Cross type of organizations. That being said, is there any help for people in the community uh, and any chance of them uh, obtaining those funds? Well, all the money that was gathered, there is a portion that goes to the city. I haven't really been able to get a straight answer on how that money is going to be divvied up between everybody. I think that's something that they would prefer to to keep a, a private matter. Um, but, you know, it's been a year almost, and, and money is still being donated. It's quite something. You talked about how, uh, you know, there are reports that this could easily happen again in these areas. Uh, what has been learned from this? Is there anything different w- within the way the town protects itself from these sorts of things? 
Well, the town hasn't really been able to, to focus too much on that. The main focus there is definitely getting the rebuild up and running and people moving back into their homes. Um, but there will definitely be discussions going forward about what we can do to do a better job. And that's they did a great job. The fact that on May 3rd, 2016, that 80,000 people evacuated a city with one way out and there was... There was two fatalities, but they, it was on a similar highway out of the city. Mm-hmm. Nobody died in, in Fort McMurray that day or the days following. Um, there obviously might be some conversation about creating another exit throughout uh, out of the city. I was talking to um, our opposition party leader, Brian Jean, who actually has a home in that waterways neighborhood I was speaking of earlier. And I brought that up with him, and he said he's not a fire expert, but it definitely shows last year that another exit out of Fort McMurray would be greatly appreciated. Has there been much chatter about the evacuation itself? Was it done soon enough? Was it done correctly? I mean, as you mentioned, there was there was no fatalities other than a, a traffic accident uh, that, that resulted from the evacuation. But as far as evaluating the evacuation itself, how does that stand up a year later? Well, everybody seems to be pleased. There are questions about how quickly water bombers got in the air and, and how, how serious they took it. But the thing is, is on May 3rd, the fire took such a directional turn and that changed everything. Because in the morning on May 3rd, 2016, the municipality was told everything's going to be okay. But four hours later, that's when everything broke out. The fire was coming into the city. The mandatory evacuation was made. So it was such a quick response by the city and the fire department and and the province that I'm not really sure there could have been much else done. I mean, when I was up there sitting on the side of the highway, watching the flames stretch over the highway, water bombers were coming every so often, as often as they could. So People may have questions. There are still questions, and we still don't know exactly how this fire started, and hopefully we can get some of those answers this year. What about business? What about commerce up there? I mean, uh, are businesses rebuilding, that sort of thing, things that need to be that the town needs to sustain itself? Yeah, businesses are being rebuilt, Scott. Unfortunately, in neighborhoods like Beacon Hill, Abbasand, and Waterways, there weren't too many businesses down there. A lot of it was residential. Um it's amazing, though, in some of these neighborhoods, there were schools there, and you go into Beacon Hill or Abbasand, and <laughs> across the street from a school, there was a row of homes burnt down, but the school still stood, and there was no smoke damage, nothing. So it really speaks to what that fire was like last year, and it really just did whatever it wanted it to do. Uh, you talked about uh, some criticizing or perhaps were critical if it uh, if this directive was given uh, too late and not soon enough. And as you mentioned, with the way this thing turns too quickly, have we learned anything about that uh, future? These evacuations perhaps have you know coming sooner, even though they may appear a fire may appear that it is a distant away. Uh, obviously, because of the way these things change direction so quickly. I think those conversations are being had, but um, listening to the now-retired fire chief, Darby Allen, I mean, in his 30 years, he said he'd never seen anything like it. It's it's something that you just, you can't predict. You don't know when the wind is going to change. You don't know where it's going to take it. And on that fateful day, it just decided, hey, we're going straight for Fort McMurray. So what about the next year, Brad? Uh, What do you think this town will look like a year from now? What are their goals in the next year? In the next year, you'll definitely see people moving back in. I mean, some of these homes are going to be done 
probably by the end of the summer. Some people are hopeful to move in this summer. Other people are hopeful to to move in by the end of 2017. So things are only going to get better. Now, earlier I was mentioning the the uh, people seeing marks on burn marks on the trees. Trees Canada stepping up. They they plan on committing a million dollars in trees. So hopefully turning Fort McMurray green again because prior to this fire it was a beautiful city. So. Everybody seems to be doing whatever they can to make Fort McMurray strong again and move forward in a, in a positive way. Uh, you bring up an, an interesting point, Brad, just before I let you go here. Last question. Um, sure. For those that have never been up in that neck of the woods, uh, you, you talked about it being a beautiful city and, you know, you're out in the middle there of the God's country. Uh, what did it like? What does it look like to the visitor coming in the town now? Can you, can you still see visible signs of the actual fire itself? I mean, how prominent is that? Yeah, absolutely. Because in in any neighborhood you go, you're seeing these these homes be rebuilt. You see the burn marks on the trees. You still see some people's homes who are standing. You see their siding burnt. Um, it's going to take a long time before people aren't reminded of this. I think people that have lived in in Fort McMurray or people visiting who are frequent visitors, they know what that city used to look like. And it's not to say that. Uh, it's completely uh, desolate, and it's not brown, but just Fort McMurray was, was a very green city and a very positive city. They were, they're all hard workers up there, and, and they do a lot for our economy. And just to see the attitude of the residents change a little bit um, and the, just the overall look of it, it's, it's going to take some time for everything to, uh, to heal over. Brad Whisker has been with us, reporter on the ground, 6.30, Chad in Edmonton, talking about Fort McMurray one year after and how they're coping. Brad, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. It was uh, a year ago this week that uh, the mass evacuation started of Fort McMurray, Alberta, as the town had to flee uh, as fire uh, ravaged in on that city, forest fires. Uh, Let's talk to uh, Andre Lindo. He's a Fort McMurray resident who uh, fled the ravaged city and uh, now resides elsewhere. He is with us now. Hello, Andre. How are you today? Well, how are you guys? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Where are you living now, Andre? Uh, I ended up moving to Edmonton, the city that kind of took us in. And so, uh, well, first of all, tell us your evacuation story. How did this all happen for you? Oh, well, basically we were playing beach volleyball. Um, We have a little uh, beach, a river that we uh, played volleyball at, and uh, we ended up seeing the fire in the background um, or smoke. Uh, a lot of people said, oh, yeah, you know what, we, we know forest fires, so it's not that close and, and whatnot. Um, but I was kind of fearful because I'm originally from Toronto, so I know I've never seen an actual uh, a fire, forest fire before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I was on high alert, so I ended up getting, like, doing precautions, getting gas, making sure I got some water just in case there was some sort of evacuation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Um, it happened, right? So everyone was like, you know what, this fire is getting a little too close. Um, I was actually at work, and we ended up just evacuating and leaving everything behind and trying to get out as quickly as possible. Um, so, so you so you were playing volleyball. Uh, yeah. How long after playing volleyball did you actually evacuate? So you guys noticed it, it was. It was the day after, because yeah. well, the the mayor ended up coming on and saying, no, everything is fine, we're working on it, you know, take your kids out to play, and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. literally the next day, she's like, we need to leave now. So um, it was kind of a slow reaction to the fire and seeing the seriousness of it um, on, like, the uh, the mayor's part and um, those that were kind of, you know, following the fire. 
um, someone like me that doesn't know anything about this, like I was already on high alert. So, yeah, I wanted to leave as quickly as possible. So did you get out before the mayhem really started? No. <laughs> no way. So, so, tried. So, you were at, so you were at work the next day and they yeah. said, let's it, get out, we got to go. Yeah, when we were at work, we were following it, and then all of a sudden, we just saw, like, it was literally maybe, maybe, I don't know, it was just coming over the mountain. I, I, if mm-hmm. you've ever been to Fort McMurray, there was just, there's just, like, it was just coming over the hill, mm-hmm. and the it, the whole city was literally dark, like, it was, it was like a grayish um, undertone, very dark outside, and we we're just like, no, we got to get out of here. And where did you work? Or where did you uh, it was a place called Photosource, so it was like a photography company. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were, we were retail, so they the guys, they didn't really think it was that serious. And we ended up, uh, some of them ended up staying, which was not a good idea. So, yeah. So what was it like when you left, Andre? When, it was, when I left, we were in bumper-to-bumper traffic trying to get south. Mm-hmm. Um, what ended up happening is, like, we ha- ended up stopping, and then we saw fire on both sides of our... Um, of our car, like literally, um, the trees were on fire, ablaze, like forty foot trees, just just on fire, mm-hmm. and uh, the gas station blew up. So ended up stopping and trying to push everyone back north. I continued to pursue going south because I knew it wasn't gonna gonna be a good idea going north because there's nowhere to go from nor- uh, north, right? Right. So we went south to Edmonton. And how long did it take you to do that drive? Um, well, for me, it took six and a half hours because I, you know, it was, my mind was set to get to Edmonton, and Edmonton usually is about a four-hour drive, so six and a half hours in traffic. But once you kind of broke through the the smoke and the uh, and the ash, you were kind of uh, free fl- flying. So, uh, were you ever fearful for your life? Were how scared were you? Well, I wasn't scared for me. I was more scared for my for my wife and for people around me. Yeah. Um, I'm the type of person just you know I want to take care of everyone. Um, but the fire the fire was extremely like scary. Just like yeah. um, huge flames. Your car's like so hot, and you're driving like ten kilometers an hour, and you just see flames ru- uh, fly across the road. It's it's crazy. Oh man, and yeah. you just couldn't go any faster because obviously traffic no, was backed traffic. up. Traffic. And then people were ran out. The main thing was people were running out of gas because uh, they didn't fill up. People were staying at the gas station. One of the gas stations blew up. So people ended up having to abandon their cars and uh, walking. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, So when you got to Edmonton, what was that experience like? Oh, my gosh. Edmonton was amazing. They just took us in with open arms. They fed us. they, They clothed us. They opened up. Um, you know, centers to for us to get you know food, uh, clothing because people were like leaving with just the clothes on their back, so people needed underwear, just different things that we needed uh, in order to just survive. Because we only thought we would be around, there for like a week or so right. or a few days, but then it ended up being a month. You know, so. So uh, when did you decide you were not going to go back? I decided um, I th- uh, about three weeks in. Yeah. Uh, I had a mortgage to pay, so I wasn't working, and uh, Red Cross wasn't really giving. We didn't have enough from Red Cross to mm-hmm. kind of keep my mortgage paying, and I had a house in Toronto, so I had to get a job as soon as possible. So I said, you know what, we just, let's just decide to move out to Edmonton and um, uh, get jobs here. Um, and then we ended up, uh, 
you know, we ended up getting into a car accident, so we ended up losing a lot of the money from Red Cross as well because oh, we had man. to deal with that. So, oh man, yeah. um, it's so, stressful. So, uh, so you owned a home, or you own a home in Toronto? You didn't own one in Edmonton, or sorry, in no, Fort McMurray, in correct? Fort McMurray. No, we were renting. Um, I was from our my cousins. Very, we had a lot of smoke damage. You know, a lot of like it's the house was. Uh, smelled horrible like yeah. just going back it was just a really horrible experience going back but the house did survive yeah it, we actually it ended up being 10 feet from our house the fire really? stopping right like 10 feet from our house yeah man um so uh how long were you in edmonton and then you went back to fort mcmurray is that correct yeah well so they allowed us back i think sometime in july so i had to go back to get my stuff we ended up having to find places to rent and stuff so when we drove back it was like it looked like a war zone, um, just like ash everywhere. There's yeah. no greenery like it used to be. It was just, it was sad. You know, like my wife was crying going back. And uh, I just want to say, though, a lot of people went through, you know, post-traumatic stress and, yeah. um, you know, dealing with, you know, it was like a really horrible experience, right? So so uh, after uh, you've spent three weeks or so many uh, or so many weeks in Edmonton, and then mm-hmm. you, how many weeks did you spend in Edmonton before you went back to Fort Mac? Uh, I think we were, I think it was about six, six to eight weeks, something like that. Around and and, and so. then when you went back to Fort Mac, was it to stay, or what was your original thought? So when we went back to Fort Mac, we we decided to just move our stuff um, uh, to move our stuff out. We mm-hmm. didn't have a lot of stuff there, right? Um, so we just did you still have jobs there though a job no we didn't have the job right. my wife lost her job because of um i believe uh, you know she was at Keanu college and they were restructuring anyway so she right. ended up losing her job and then myself um i didn't think uh i would have a job coming back so we ended up i think he ended up opening the store a few months later so right. you know Wow. So uh, you decided pretty soon after going back to Fort Mac that you were going to stay in Edmonton. Yeah, yeah, because my, my mind was set um, to to make sure that, you know, I have to provide for my family, like my right. wife and I. And I, I was like, no, I gotta, I, I, I'm not the type of person to just sit around. I just right. gotta get something done, right? right. So what drew, what drew you to Fort McMurray in the first place? Um, the opportunity, like my cousin was out there being a personal trainer and he was making a lot of money. So mm-hmm. I said, you know what, let me just leave my little cushy job uh, in Toronto and just let's try something new and mm-hmm. try something adventurous. My wife and I said, you know what, let's do it. Let's try Fort McMurray and see what what happens, right? So how long have you been in Edmonton now? You've been in Edmonton, uh, how many months? Uh, now it's gonna, this is going to be a June uh, actually, this is going to be a year now. So, mm-hmm. been been here for a year, and uh, it's been great. Uh, it's a different different lifestyle. You know, we do miss home, Toronto, uh, but uh, it's a different lifestyle. It's very quiet, less traffic. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> like the enjoy dri- that, know. Andre. Enjoy that. Oh, that's that's mm. like driving down the four hundred three was horrible yeah. in when I was in Toronto. But here, it's like if you're going to be somewhere, if you want to be somewhere in twenty minutes, you're there in twenty minutes. That's what Edmonton's like. Wow. Uh, so, um, why did you decide not to go back? Just that it was going to take too much time to rebuild Fort McMurray? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to be part of that process. Um, yeah. I know it seems selfish in a sense, but um, my pro- my the reason why I wanted to go to Fort McMurray was to you know gain like to progress my mm-hmm. my life and mm-hmm. self forward and 
going back would have just set me back a couple years. Right. Um, and I, I, I have to focus on my family and, and stuff that I have to get through. So, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of things that were going on. You know, a lot of businesses weren't getting money from, from the Red Cross and from, um, from, you know, from the city, the city dropped the ball on a lot of different things, um, trying to help, you know, businesses, you know, get back on their feet. Um, food was a little, especially food at the, at the first part was really hard to kind of mm-hmm. come by and stuff like that. So I didn't want to have to deal with that, that kind of situation. Uh, have you been back up there since you moved to Edmonton? Yeah, I went back for a wedding, um, so I went back, and I still have friends out there, and we, we talk. They miss us, like our volleyball uh, mm-hmm. kind of team and stuff like that miss us. So we've been back a few times, but um, I think that's kind of in our in our past now. We're trying to move forward now. So you don't have any plans on going back? No, no, I have no plans to go how, back now. How does the town look now, uh, or how was it for you now going back after being away and considering what happened? It was really sad. Like um, when we went, well, when I went back the last time, you know, the greenery started to come back, and you're seeing the, you know, the Fort McMurray of old that that we kind of know, know uh, remember. But uh, it's still slow. It's still people are still, um, you know, um, you can see the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's rebuilding. It's rebuilding. You know, Albertans are really strong, man. They they re, they're rebuilding this place. You know, um, a lot of the top people there are trying to make sure that this that uh, people are getting homes, um, getting places to live, and food and and stuff. It's just it's been great. It's been great. The friends that you've had that have, that are still up there. Yeah. What have they said about the rebuild and, and you know, the, the issues of getting insurance and doing everything that you have to do to get back to normal? Has that been a, what's that process been like for them? Everyone has been really rethinking their insurance. A lot of people lost their homes and didn't get any insurance help. So now they've been rethinking their insurance. Um, the rebuild has been slow but steady. Um, a lot of people just, you know, that had high paying jobs just completely left and that hey, they're just going to live in Calgary or Edmonton. So there were a lot of those high-paying jobs uh, out there, um, and they just needed people to kind of, like, needed more bodies just to get things done. Uh, slowly recovering, you know, people are slowly recovering. Um, my cousin's business is, has recovered completely, so, um, and, and the f- photography store that I work for as well has completely recovered, and and starting to, you know, gain back more business. And, you know, the great thing about it is is that people want to support our, um, the company, so they're trying to that's been done for Fort McMurray first and then bringing outside help second. What about, uh, obviously, as you said, man, what a stressful experience to go through this and, you know, to be, you know, I can't imagine, you know, seeing those pictures of people driving out of the, uh, down the, the highway with fire on both sides of them and such. Talk a little bit about the stress and, you know, it's, it's obvious that some people could uh, suffer from PTSD after yeah. something like this. Do, do you ever get flashbacks about this? Do you still think about it? Well, it's not. It's not about that. It's not about um, like flashbacks. It's more about the stress of Are you okay? Um, whenever I see a little smoke in the air, it's like, What do I need to make sure? Do I need to be prepared to evacuate again? Um, stuff like that. Like um, a lot of uh, some of my friends had some med- medical issues, and just like they just they kind of brush it off as, Oh, it's just a small medical issue. But it's actually them suffering from 
um, you know, post-traumatic stress, right? Um, my wife was very stressed out and ended up having to send her back home with her mom to kind of just, um, you know, re- refresh herself because um, in her mind, it this this off this this thing that happened to her was like it was almost as it's almost like war to, to them, right? Yeah. Um, you know, dealing with it myself, I was very stressed. Uh, like I've been very very stressed, and I put on so much weight just because of the stress and, and mm. stuff like that. So I'm trying to, you know, um, you know, now that things are a little bit better, things are you know evening out. Um, trying to get back into my routine, right? Right. How, uh, as you look back at this a, a year later, um, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on how Fort McMurray handled the evacuation? Um, uh, and, and you know, from some of the evident, anecdotal evidence you've, you've heard from your friends and the rebuilding process, has Fort Mac learned anything from this? Well, I think we learned a lot. We learned a lot about, you know, the community, you know, as the community, we we love each other. We we help. We're you know we help people. There was a lot of people you know running gas back and forth to people that ran ran out of gas. You know, um, yes, the city didn't respond fast enough, but this was like the first time this has ever happened. Like, um, I can't blame the city too much for the way they handled it. It's just those type of crises don't always happen, right? Um, but we should have evacuated a little faster. Um, you know, pushing everyone north was a very bad bad decision in, uh, when you think of hindsight um, because they thought it was going to be, it wasn't going to be as bad as they thought it would be. Um, but, you know, what we, I think we learned so much and there's so much love and so much togetherness now. Um, I think the Fort McMurray community is stronger than ever before. All right, last question, Andre. Sure. So uh, you grew up, or uh, sorry, uh, from Toronto, still have a house here. You're now an Edmontonian officially uh, mm-hmm. and a transplanted Easterner out to the West. <laughs> yeah. uh, you said life's different out there. Explain to someone in Southern Ontario what life's like in Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, Edmonton, right now, Oilers, Oilers are the craze. Right Good time now. to be there. Yeah, it's the time to be there. I think it's. I think everyone's kind of like really riding uh, O'Connor or Connor McDavid and stuff like that. So McDavid fevers out here, but it's a very relaxed, laid-back kind of city. Um, not too mu- not too much uh, traffic. Like I said, uh, housing is way cheaper out here. So uh, we're looking to buy a house out here and um, kind of try to settle down. But uh, you know. Uh, the community out here is a lot like they're nicer out here. A lot of pickup trucks, um, and there's a lot of room. There's a lot of room, not, <laughs> not congested like like Hamilton or uh, like Toronto or anything like that. But it's a it's a great it's a great time to kind of maybe even invest out there. It's it's a great city. Uh, have you been down to Calgary much? There's a huge rivalry there. Describe the two oh, cities. Which one do you like ooh, better? Calgary. Um, <laughs> I, 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 actually, it's funny. I had a job interview out there, and I have we have family, uh, a family friend, a family out there. Um, Calgary isn't like uh, Edmonton. Calgary's more of like a like a micro Toronto yeah. in a in a sense um, mm-hmm. where there's so much so much business and stuff kind of happening. Um, but it's but you can see the mountains in the background. Yeah. And I would say if you're if you've never been to Alberta, please go to Banff and Jasper. It'd be the beautiful most beautiful place on earth. Very, very true. Uh, yeah. Andre Lindo has been with us, Fort McMurray resident who fled and is now residing in Edmonton. Andre, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Appreciate Thank you, you Sarah. Appreciate you sharing your story and good luck for the future. 
All right. Thanks, guys. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've been talking an awful lot lately about uh, North Korea. It seemed for the longest time we were, uh, we didn't really pay too much attention to what uh, Kim Jong-un did or you know, remember when Dennis Rodman was going over there a couple of years ago and they're playing some basketball and all that sort of thing. Um, and now, and every so often, uh, they'd flex their muscles and they'd do some sort of nuclear test or whatever it is that they needed to do. Uh, and largely, this was for more internal politics than it was external, uh, because the people in, in North Korea and in like most communist countries uh, just aren't doing that well. Uh, technology is slow. Uh, it's a fixed uh, economy. It's, it's not a global market. So uh, these people are living in societies that are far less advanced uh, than ours does, despite people who praise Cuba and think it's great and such. Uh, it's very limited on how it's progressed over the years. Uh, same thing with uh, parts of Russia, same thing with uh, North Korea. And for the most part, again, North Korea would flex its muscles like this um, basically to create fear within its own country and domestically, I, I guess, prove that it was doing something to justify uh, the leadership that was in place. Uh, And now, uh, of course, fast forward President Trump in power, and all of a sudden we seem to be paying a lot more attention to North Korea than we have in the past and taking it a lot more seriously. Is it politics? What has changed? Uh, Let's bring in Simon uh, Palomar. He is a research assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation, and is with us now. Hello, Simon. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. You know, Simon, as I mentioned, it seemed for the longest time, uh, every so often North Korea would do a a test of some sort and everybody would going, you know, it was was almost like a one-sided fight, uh, trying Mm -hmm. to sort of poke the bear and and, and get everybody's attention. Uh, What has changed? How have we moved from, oh, yeah, there's that guy over there every so often doing something we have to keep an eye on to all of a sudden becoming the focal point of this administration? What's changed here, Simon? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's something that we pondered here quite a bit because North Korea is a, you know, a really tough foreign policy challenge. And it's important to remember the United States, um, for at least you know one, two, three, four administrations now, has wanted to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula, prevent North Korea from acquiring nuclear weapons, and once nuclear, once North Korea got them, get North Korea to give up those nuclear weapons. So. There's nothing new in that regard. There's been a long-standing challenge, but it's been a hard one. It's been a really hard one. Every time it looks like there might be uh, some progress on that front, you know, whether there are negotiations that seem to be bearing fruit or the possibility of you know, North Korea maybe agreeing to a freeze in its program, the, the effort falls apart and you're back at square one and the Americans are frustrated, look foolish because they've invested all this time and energy into it, and you're nowhere. So for Donald Trump, so early in his first administration to try to take on such a tough challenge, it does beg the question, you know, what's going on? And there are a couple possibilities here. I mean, one is that something substantive has changed inside North Korea. There has been some concern that North Korea's nuclear weapons program might be further along than we thought. They might be able to produce more weapons more quickly than uh, we previously believed, and they might be getting 
closer to miniaturizing those weapons so they can mount them on missiles. Now, this wouldn't really fundamentally change the challenge that the North Korean government poses, but it would raise some of the risks there. The second really interesting possibility is that we have to remember that the South Korean president just got impeached in March, uh, Park Geun-hye. She was very tough on North Korea. North, uh, South Korea is now going to have an election uh, in about a week from now, on May 9th. And uh, right now, the leading candidate, the guy who's topping the polls, Moon Dae-in, he's run on a policy of you know trying to bury the hatchet with North Korea, if such a thing as possible, to try to reunify the, North, the Korean Peninsula in a, in a peaceful manner. And I think that the Americans might be you know, trying to underscore to the next Korean administration that, you know, you think these guys are easy to get along with. You've never dealt with them, you know, government to government. You know, we have. So, you know, whoever wins, if it's going to be President Moon, realize these guys are tough customers and they're not your friends and your policy might be misguided. Does North Korea have any interest in working with South Korea at all? Well, I mean, wouldn't couldn't they find a, a relationship that benefits both of them here? They have in the past. That's that's very one of the paradoxical things about relations between the two countries. I mean, they're still technically out of state of war, and you know, North Korea routinely um, belches out rhetoric about war with South Korea, about you know, using artillery on Seoul or or uh, invading, and occasionally they do shell, um, you know, South Korean armed forces or shoot at South Korean uh, Navy ships. But in the past, in the recent past, they, the two countries have found ways to get along. For example, uh, some South Korean businessmen uh, invest in special economic zones in, in North Korea where they, uh, where they, they've invested in manufacturing plants that make housewares, clothing, and whatnot. You know, these are low-paying, menial jobs, but they're much better jobs than most North Koreans can ever hope to get. Uh, the product quality is pretty good. So these South Korean businesses make a buck. Um, these uh, North Korean laborers make a small buck. And then the North Korean government claws back a lot of their wages. It's kind of a win-win-win. There are also some exchanges across the border. So families that were separated by the war, you know, and, and have living descendants on each side, you know, people in their 80s very easily, you know, uh, can be missing a, a brother or a sister or a cousin that they haven't seen in years. And they've worked on those, those reunification uh, trips, you know, a, a short visit here or there and some kind of, some kind of, you know, exchange realizing that, you know, the war and the legacy of the wars had a terrible humanitarian cost. So to say that the two countries cannot get along or find a way to coexist, I mean, is, I mean, obviously not true. They found a way to do it, but a lot, a lot of the time when tensions rise over some other issue, such as, you know, uh, North Korea's nuclear program, it's these little cooperative ventures that often get frozen for a time period or scuttled. Donald Trump um, obviously talking tough with North, North Korea when asked if there will be further or any military action. He's, you know, playing his cards very close to his chest. The old we'll see. He used to always complain that Barack Obama would reveal too much. He's obviously playing it, it the opposite. Yet, so he's talking tough on, on, on out of one side of his mouth. But on the other hand, he seems almost sympathetic to Kim Jong-un. You know, here's a young guy. He's thrown into this. What's the strategy there? 
You know, that's a, that's a very hard one to, to pin down. I mean, I think what we've seen with Donald Trump is that he, whether it's domestic policy or foreign policy, he, he likes to think that everything's a negotiation, which, you know, it's a reasonable way to think about interactions between governments and countries and parties. And then when he's negotiating, he likes to come out really hard and, you know, put a stake in the ground at a really extreme position, you know, whether it's healthcare or in this case, you know, North Korea, that, you know, North Korea's got to denuclearize. Now I'm sending a, a carrier group, you know, to the, uh, to its shores and no options are off the table. He likes to set that stake really, you know, in a really extreme position, see how people react. And then he very quickly backs off when he doesn't seem to get, yeah. you know, what he wants. So that, I think, you know, after 100 days, it's only been 100 days, 100 days of, of this presidency, we're starting to see a pattern there. He, he likes to anchor hard, is what we call it. Hmm. And then he backs off. Hmm. His admiration of Kim Jong-un, and I find that, I mean, I'm not sure if it's part of a strategy or part of, you know, he seems to have a you know genuine admiration for people like uh, Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, people have a, who have you know, a brutal reputation but, you know, whether we like them or not, are very effective at getting things done. And, you know, this is a president who really did make his name and his fortune in reality TV, in showmanship, and presenting that, that image of somebody who's very effective at executing plans and getting results. So can, all of this, so can all of this be solved, Simon, by a simple trip between the two of them to the Winter White House? Is that what needs to happen here? <laughs> That, that you know, be, around uh, the golf, some cocktails, yeah, and we'll solve the world problems. White an image. Uh, but right now, I mean, negotiations, direct bilateral negotiations between Pyongyang and Washington, I think that would be precisely what the, the Kim government wants and what I think a, a lot of advisors and uh, foreign policy people in Washington are saying should not happen because – it would give, you know, the Kim government a tremendous, uh, tremendous degree of, um, you know, legitimacy credibility, in the eyes yeah. of its neighbors. Huge amount of credibility. Huge amount of credibility with China, which is the one country that has the, you know, has the ability to really rein North Korea in. I mean, the problem for China is also if something goes terrible in North Korea, they are the ones that have to pick up the pieces. They have uh, perhaps the most to lose in any sort of uh, crisis with North Korea after South Korea and the Korean. So where is China on this? I mean, uh, are they are they looking after China? Are they making sure they don't react, uh, uh, you know, shoot from the hip, so to speak? Or are they playing both sides of the street here? Well, it depends on who you talk to Um, in, you know, circles with people who have been in the, you know, the closed door off the record meetings with China. There is a feeling that the Chinese are increasingly frustrated with the North Korean government, with their their bellicose behavior, but they don't see a a solution for North Korea. What they instead see is it's a problem that has to be managed. So, for you know, for President Xi of China, for the for the Communist Party in Beijing, they look at North Korea. They don't want it to get too hot. They don't want 
country. So what's their role here? On the, what's their ro- role here, Simon, on the world stage? I mean, should they not be, um, you know, be the mediator between North Korea and the United States? Shouldn't they be saying, okay, settle down, boys, here, we got to calm this down a bit? They can do that, but their preference is to do it quietly. And in fact, I think we probably saw a little bit of that when President Xi visited President Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, there, you had a, a, a President Trump who was going to that meeting talking very tough, doing his typical staking out of the issues, taking an extreme position. And he really did dial back after his initial meetings with Xi. And it's very possible that uh, President Xi explained to the Americans, here are the complexities of the issue you know, we don't want a failed state with nuclear weapons on our southern border. We don't want to have to invade it and stabilize it. And we're not going to do that. You know, the Chinese understand that the Americans are more impatient on this issue than they are, but they also have less to lose. So it's entirely possible that, you know, she made Chinese views very clear and was reassured by the Americans that, you know, this is mostly just luster. This is mostly just to catch the attention of the North Korean regime. Uh, but right now, China doesn't, China doesn't want to be seen as selling out, you know, a longtime ally. It might be a bad ally, but it's still an ally. They don't want to be seen doing so publicly. So any, any pressure they put on the North Korean regime, they tend to do it quietly, they tend to do it behind closed doors, and they don't make a big fuss about it. Uh, North Korea is saying that the U.S. is being aggressive and hysterical. Which side is, is showing aggression and hysteria here? Arguably, this is, this is an odd situation, but the, the North Korean government may have a bit of a point in this case. Uh, the thing about this government, especially since uh, Kim Jong-un took power, I mean, if you remember when he took the reins, he was very young, did not look like he had the network of loyalists that his father had. And there were some serious questions when he became supreme leader. I mean, is this guy going to be whisked away in the night by a military coup? That was a very distinct possibility. And he, you know, very quickly tried to, you know, consolidate power, executing rivals, um, conducting more nuclear weapons tests, more missile tests. And for the past few years, it's been a fairly steady uh, drumbeat of aggressive behavior. It's definitely aggressive behavior, but it's nothing, you know, even by uh, North Korean standards, it's nothing exceptional. In fact, it's probably less aggressive in some ways than it has been in the past. For example, they're not sinking South Korean Navy ships right now. They're just testing more missiles. What we have seen is we've seen a switch from a rather patient United States Bill Clinton's administration was quite patient. George W. Bush's administration was quite patient. Barack Obama's administration was quite patient. They put on pressure with sanctions. They conducted uh, espionage against North Korea, uh, tried to round up its uh, spy networks outside of the country. But this Trump administration is impatient. And they haven't taken too many concrete steps, but the the level of rhetoric, I mean, it certainly doesn't match... The, any real change in, in, in North Korean behavior. So where do you see this action going in the next year or so? I mean, w- because again, it, it seemed that prior to President Trump, we weren't really talking a lot about aggression and war, and now it seems that's all we've been talking about for the last hundred days. Yeah, now, now of course, uh, that's a, I mean, this is a, a tricky one to answer. I mean, forecasting this, this president, like I said earlier, we're starting to see patterns. 
we're starting to see patterns. It's not entirely clear yet what what a, a Trump foreign policy, if there, is, if there even is a, a definable foreign policy there, looks like. But right now, my guess is if the, you know, once the South Korean presidential elections are over, there's more clarity about what South Korea's posture towards North Korea is going to be. Are they going to go really soft on North Korea? Are they going to go really hard on North Korea? Are they going to take, you know, the Goldilocks option in the middle? That will tell the Americans something. The U.S. has also been, uh, for years now, attempting to set up um, ballistic missile defenses in South Korea, largely at the request of uh, the South Korean military and South Korean government. And those, uh, th- this missile defense system is being, uh, you know, installed you know, as we speak and set up. Once we get those two things done and there's a bit more clarity there, we might see, you know, uh, uh, President Trump back off a bit saying, look, we've got missile defenses in South Korea now. So if they try anything crazy, we can stop them. And he can portray that as a win. Hmm. Uh, if, if, uh, if Moon Jae-in gets elected to be the next president of South Korea and he says, well, you know, of course I'm going to, you know, still try to reconcile with North Korea, but I'm still going to work with my American counterpart as well, then, you know, uh, again, the Americans can portray that as, look, we have a coherent policy. We're taking it more seriously. We're going to be more aggressive, ballistic missile defense, you know, a cooperative partner in South Korea. And you could see it fizzle out like that. That being said, you know, um, another nuclear test, for example, that would be a significant event. That would be an act of significant you know, North Korean aggression, and you might see further escalation. I can see this all coming to uh, a nice ending, Simon, at the Winter White House with a round of golf. Maybe bring Dennis Rodman in, some basketballs and high tops. Let's settle this like boys. Journalists would love it. it <laughs> Simon Palomar has been with us, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.